Good morning, Sam. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. How are you, Chris? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. We've been had a nice little time out in the garden with the yard and the leaves and all sorts of... Oh, it's so beautiful uh, outside. ...time with the family over the weekend. It was great. And we're... Uh, just got to meet with the youth uh, last night, which is always a treat. A really great group. And yeah, we're doing really good. And I'm excited for our guests today. One of the reasons that I'm excited so much for our guest today is is the youth, is one of the incredible things about this moment that we're sharing at First Church is it's really built on, you know, everybody's really sweet about the staff team, which is great. But the more incredible thing to me, in addition, is so many volunteers who are serving in so many ways. And... Uh, John Howe is with us today. Welcome, John. Thank you, Chris. And the incredible thing about John is the many different ways that he's served over the years. Even in this very moment, uh, we have the the real gift of John's leadership uh, with our youth, which is wonderful. And we'll talk a little bit about that. But in addition to that, I've also gotten to work with John on finance. When I first came during the candidating weeks, John was working on the capital campaign and then is on the finance committee and then also has been in our choir and in the Linden Singers, which we've worked with a bunch uh, during the pandemic and so many videos and just so many things. And now, especially uh, interesting for this moment, has been working on our history project. And because this winter, our theme is holding history. So we'll get to talk a little bit about that too. But anyway, welcome, John. And thank you for all of this that you're doing and so much more. Yeah, welcome, John. Well, great to be here and great to be involved in all these ways. Yeah. <laughs> so so yeah, what, maybe just start, tell the story a little bit about how you guys, how you guys came and how did you find First Church in the very beginning? Oh, well, that's an interesting story, Chris. Uh, uh, we've been at the church since the mid-90s. I think we first came in the fall of 95. And um, I actually think about my uh, movement into the church in several different phases. Uh, both Teresa and I grew up in other mainstream churches. Uh, and uh, it was probably in the mid-80s, I think 1985, I remember attending a, a, my first UU service with a friend of hers when we lived in Washington, D.C. Um, the great preacher David Eaton gave a sermon that probably remains the most influential in my life. Um, his theme was based on the first spoken words of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew. And uh, to those who are familiar with their Bible, they know the first words he spoke was, follow me. Wow. And mm. when, uh, mm. when Eaton gave his sermon that morning, he said, how different would history have been if the Christian church had focused on how to follow Jesus, not worship him? Wow. How many wars have been fought? How many lives have been lost 
over how to worship Jesus, not follow him. And that's something that has stuck with me for all my life. Yeah. And uh, so over, over the next few years, uh, I thought about it. We gradually became disaffected with the churches that we were involved in. And it was actually when our daughter was in nursery school at the UU Church in Arlington, First Parish. She was in the Sunshine Nursery School. One day, I just picked up a raft of flyers off the rack as I was waiting for a student-teacher conference and uh, or parent-teacher conference. And uh, I didn't even look at them for a couple of days. But I remember the moment one night when Teresa was cleaning up in the kitchen and I'd already gone to bed and I started reading these flyers. And I remember calling out to her from the bedroom, come here, you've got to hear this. Wow. This is you. <laughs> and after about 30 seconds, I said, oh, this isn't just you. This is me. <laughs> and uh, so I've always told my friends at church, don't underestimate the importance of those tracks on the rack Seriously. in the foyer. So uh, it still took us a little while to come to First Church. We moved to Belmont in 94. We loved our church in Arlington, continued to go there for a year. But when we realized our kids' future was in Belmont, it really was time for us to make the move, too. And so we came to our first service in the fall of 95. I think it took me one service of hearing Victor Carpenter, our, our beloved minister and really a very influential man in my life, uh, to decide this was our community. And then I would say there was one further stage. There was a special person in my relationship uh, with the church, uh, and that was Nancy Holland. Nancy oh, was yeah. Alpha's assistant director in the choir. I loved the music at, at First Church. And uh, when our son told me, Dad, I'm involved in so many things at school and in scouts and I was, he was involved in science and debate and all these things. And he was also a chorister. And he said, I've got to give something up. I think it's going to be choir. Wow. Well, I was terrified how to tell Alpha that our son was pulling out of the choir. <laughs> and so I had to tell her, Alpha, I want to make a trade. My son has to leave choir. Can I join yours? Wow. And, and it was Nancy who really integrated me into the choir. I would say the choir became my first family at the church. Mm. And through that experience, it broadened into a fuller relationship and involvement in, in all these other ways. So those are kind of the stages of my uh, transition into first church. And was the, was the uh, witness exchange accepted by Alpha that worked out? Oh, it, it's worked out. It worked out beautifully. That's great. I, yeah, I, I love uh, that. Have been Devoted member of the choir all uh, all these years. I've never missed a major music. Uh, I think Ian's doing a fabulous job, right. and and the music is just a has always been a very important part of my involvement in the church. But one thing I will tell you, Chris, is I found in the early years I got to know the backs of people's heads <laughs> because we were up in the loft, right? And so it took it was a longer period for me to sort of build out uh, relationships and connections. I did join the board in the early 2000s at a frenetic period in my uh, career. And I, I was never that involved in, in uh, leadership decisions during my board term, but I did start to get more involved in other activities uh, and uh, have had a role in finance, led stewardship, and, and of course, the, uh, most recently, the capital campaign. So one thing led to another, and over the time uh, that we've been at the church, 
um, it's really become a very central part uh, of my life. Yeah. Well, there's so much to pick up on. I want to, I want to begin maybe just, especially with the music, what is it, you know, you connect in musically. One of the things I've really loved, um, singing many, mostly years ago when I was in choirs before, you know, serving as minister, but, but there's just something so beautiful to singing with a group of people. I've found that I've really, you know, I've loved singing when we're, we've been outside in those outdoor services, but there's just something different when you're in a choir and you're singing together and you, you can get to that point where you can hear your song and your part along with the others all at the same time. I really loved that. Um, what, what, what has been sort of your favorite part of singing and singing in choirs? Well, I, I think it's just that it's, um, it, it is choral singing is often called it's ironic, especially during this period of pandemic. Choral singing is uh, considered by many to be the most most health giving form of musical expression. Huh. When we're I did not know in, that. Yeah, when we're involved in a chorus, we're breathing. Um, there's a lot of spirit of fellowship and laughter mm. in the in the choral experience. And if you're in a if you're in a, a choir with several people on a part, oftentimes one or another member of uh, a section will flub a line, but there are others that can pick up. It's not like you're the one piccolo in the orchestra who has to wait 243 beats and come in right <laughs> on time. Yeah, and yeah. so um, it's it's studies have shown that that choral singers really it it does it can extend life, it can lower anxiety, wow. and it's ironic that that it, because of the the nature of this pandemic, that choral singing is one of the musical things that we have not been free to do. And yeah. it has, it is really one of the things I miss the most about uh, the past couple of years is singing together. Yeah. We've done, you know, Ian and the team have done yeoman's work yeah. uh, to put things together so that we have choral music, but I just can't wait till we can get back together. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, it's one of the things I really missed also. Um, and, and like you said, it was incredible what our music team was able to do with you and, and so many others and, and the Linden singers too. How long have you been in that group? Uh, well, I guess Alpha kicked off the Linda singer, Linden singers back in, there was a recording of the, of the first church choir and a couple of uh, tracks by the Linden singers in, I believe 1997. Oh, wow. Uh, and back back at that time, actually, my friend and neighbor Roger Reed uh, invited me down the street to do a little singing together. And a few years later, uh, when there was a uh, an opening in the in Linden Singers, I think our bass soloist had moved on. Uh, I joined, I think, in '02. So wow. we've been together. Uh, uh, the the I've been in the group 20 years. Our particular foursome, I think it was 05 that we uh, wow. started singing together. So it's uh, 17, 18 years, and we've become uh, very fast friends as well as musical collaborators. That's great. Well, and um, listeners, if you haven't heard on our YouTube page, there is a playlist, and it's from the music committee, um, and there's a bunch of Linden Singers videos there uh, on that playlist. It's one of my favorite 
parts of our YouTube page actually is there's a whole lot of the incredible music um, that folks yeah, made too. during the during the pandemic. Um, the other thing I wanted to pick up on what you said, which was so beautiful, um, way at the beginning, those first words of Jesus, follow me. And what would what would Christianity look like? What would the world look like if people had followed and tried to emulate instead of worship? Which is just a fascinating question to me. And, and especially in our church. I mean, you know, Unitarian Universalism right now, so many people, new members, Sam and I get to, you know, visit and get to know the new folks on their way in. And, and it really comes up a lot. They're like, why is there all this Christian imagery in the, in the church? And I think, you know, people, people, you know, just don't know that we were historically Christian and that we've just been continuing to broaden our theological identity and base. But I think a lot of that, a lot of those early Unitarians and early Universalists, I think we're trying to do exactly that. We're trying to really ask, you know, what would it mean to follow the example of Jesus? What would it mean to what would it mean to really listen to his teachings and really try and try and not just worship him, but you know, try and follow him. I appreciate that. Yeah. And in fact, the the covenant of our church from its very beginning mentions coming together in the spirit of Jesus. Yeah, uh, I, I think it's important that we not forget uh, the the incredibly influential role that this one man has played in all of human history. Right. So I I consider, you know, coming from a Christian heritage, I consider Jesus to be a, a a, a model figure and, uh, you know, the most, um, one of the most influential individuals in all of human history. Yeah. Um, although my own personal theology has evolved, I grew up, you know, reciting the Nicene Creed and yeah. the Apostles' mm -hmm. Creed. And I think I could probably string together 30 words of that creed that I still hold to be true. And much of it I can no longer accept intellectually, right. mm. but I, I consider uh, being a Christian to be part of my uh, personal heritage, yeah. and I, I've, I've evolved sort of a a personal trinity. I, I tell people in many ways, as much as I am a member of the UU Church, I think of myself as a Christian uh, ecological humanist. Oh, fantastic! And, hmm. and I, I don't think that any one of those, uh, you know, sort of three three legs of a tripod. I don't think any one of those is is dispensable for me. Yeah. Mm. That that being said, I know others come to our church from different heritage. Yeah. And others may might be a, a Muslim ecological humanist or a Jewish ecological humanist. Mm. And I I think we find more in common from the other legs of that tripod. I think we share a common concern for humanistic values. Yeah. We uh, many in our church are are deeply concerned about ecological issues and how we as humanity treat this planet, this temporary home of ours. Um, but I, I think uh, for me, Christianity was the lens through which I learned to view the world. And it remains an important part of my personal heritage. Yeah. But in our church, it's how do we meld and integrate all of these perspectives um, into a community where uh, we we all, although in the words of Franz David, we 
we may not believe alike, we all can love alike. Yeah, no, that's mm. that's fantastic. And I think one of the ways in to me is is to you know really learn and understand the particularities of each other's personal theologies, and that's kind of one of been one of the fun things about this podcast is really digging into that with a lot of our. Folks, so can you say a little bit about what you mean about those other two legs, particularly the humanism? Because it's, I think it's super fascinating. Well, um, I, I, humanism is a longstanding tradition, certainly in in uh, Western Europe, going back to, I mean, really to the classical era, but per, but particularly since the, the the late Middle Ages, and. I know there is a movement in our in our country and across the world called secular humanism. Right. I'm actually uh, involved in a member of some secular humanist organizations, and I, I I believe it's important that we champion humanist values, um, uh, recognize uh, uh, the the equal dignity of all people, um, uh, cultivate a sense of the importance of voting rights in in our democratic society. But I also, I sometimes take umbrage at the emphasis on secular humanism, uh, a sort of a flattening of the perspective. Uh, many secular humanists are, can be militant atheists and, and uh, um, uh, you know, don't, don't want to see a role for churches in our society. I think that churches of different perspectives uh, play a crucial role in our society, and we um, we need to welcome uh, religious diversity, but we need to have a focus on those common uh, sec- uh, the the values that are championed by uh, humanists. I think need to be at the heart of our civil society. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So um, that's that's why I say I, I I think of this personal philosophy of mine very much as a tripod. Yeah. It would not stand without each of three legs. And uh, likewise, you know, I, I believe very deeply in environmental uh, the, the, the need for us to uh, take our environmental stewardship of the earth seriously. But um, there are those that would place an emphasis on environmentalism to the exclusion of those of those other values. Yeah. And, uh, I, I think there's there's dangers in go- going too extremely in that direction as well. So um, I, I think learning, cultivating a sense of a personal philosophy in life is very much a matter of of balancing competing uh, values and priorities. Mm-hmm. And, you know, given my own tra- my own training was really mostly as an economist, um, uh, a lot of life is about striving for balance. Mm. That's interesting. And and when you, I'm interested that you put ecology at the heart of your theology as one of those, as one of those three legs to the stool. Um, what's, what's, what for you is specifically theological or ethical about, about uh, the ecological leg of that? Well, uh, gee, Sam, I think we are living, we may be living at a culminating moment in history mm. Mm. That uh, I, I think the, the roots of our current ecological crisis go back not just one or two lifetimes through the era of uh, reliance on fossil fuels, but in some ways a thousand years back to the dawn of 
uh, economic growth in Western Europe, or even back, you know, 5,000 years or more since the dawn of human history. You know, I think we as humans, uh, uh, our instinct is to think primarily of our own immediate needs. And um, uh, people were generally able to satisfy their needs, their immediate needs, when the world's population was small and broadly dispersed. Uh, and uh, but through through most of history, led relatively meager lives. We, it's only in the last two human lifetimes, with the uh, exploitation of fossil fuels, that we've reached this point where an unprecedentedly large global population is living at a standard far above the standards that. Uh, um, most people lived at in centuries past, yeah. mm. and we've we've I think realized in our lifetime that it is not sustainable and that we need to make drastic changes. And it's obvious how difficult it is. I mean, we've just seen the the uh, very difficult uh, negotiation that took place in Glasgow and led to I think on balance a very unsatisfactory outcome. Yeah. Uh, from the, the most recent COP summit. Uh, we are at the, I, I think, at the the moment where if we are going to uh, protect the future of life on Earth, we now need to make drastic changes in our energy arrangements and in, in water, food production. Um, I mean, there's so much to be done in the immediate decades ahead. And I don't think we as a religious community would be responsible if we did not place ecological concern at the heart of what our community is about. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate that. And I was last night with the youth when we were gathered uh, with the youth. I was talking with one of the other people there and we were talking about just how how clear they are about the importance of this as a question. And I was mentioning to the person I was talking with my 11 year old and he was saying, you know, daddy, it's, it's good. We live where we do. And I thought he meant, you know, it was nice to be living in Belmont and be starting to make friends and getting grounded in our new house. And I was like, yeah, I'm enjoying it here too. I'm glad you are. And he said, no, 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 no. It's good that we live on a hill because when the sea levels rise, we won't be flooded and die. Oh boy. He's 11, wow. you know? Yeah. And it's just in the back and we weren't talking about sea levels and we weren't talking about, you know, climate crisis. It was just what he was thinking about. And I think that's true for so many of our our youth and really all of us like you're saying, John. I think it's a it's a crucial question for us all now and certainly, you know, one of the great things I've been really appreciative of our FCB Green group and conversations around how we can, you know, further, further our work, um, in, with this for the, for the church on so many levels. So yeah, it's, um, it's definitely crucial. Well, I had a foretaste. I had, I just, just briefly, Chris, I had a foretaste of this when I was a teenager myself. I, I came of age, I grew up in a, um, it was a comfortable, uh, affluent town, and I was a typical kid in the 60s, early 70s. I fell in love with cars. I had to drive a car as part of my first job. I learned to drive when I was 12. Wow. I used to 
do do maintenance on a on a, a tennis courts and and drag a brush to sweep the courts at night. Wow. So I couldn't wait to get my license. The I think one of the pivotal events in my life was just within weeks of getting my driver's license. Um, the Yom Kippur War of 1973 mm. took place, wow. and all of my dreams of being that uh, American graffiti teenager, uh, you know, with the Beach Boys on the radio, all of those dreams went up in smoke. And I found myself waiting in gas lines to fill up my parents' station wagon every Saturday morning at 6 a.m. Wow! And uh, I, uh, so I, I lost my love of cars, but uh, after a a brief moment of thinking, Lord, why me? I, I realized this was much bigger than me. Yeah. We were at, at the dawn of a new era. There was a lot of debate in the 70s. Was the, the oil shortage real or contrived by the oil companies to generate uh, uh, policy changes to support their agenda? And I always thought it didn't matter. What really mattered was in the long term, we were facing a period of adjustment. Yeah. And throughout uh, you know, the last 40 years, my career has been in energy and energy policy and technology. Mm. Um, you know, the, it, it's been ebb and flow, but it's clear now uh, we are at a crisis moment and we have to sustain the momentum. In the last 10 years, there's been dramatic technology advances. Yeah. I think of the new solar system that we have on our parish hall roof as, you know, that is a real statement of our uh, church community that we need to go in this direction and we need to do more. Um, uh, but I, I think, uh, uh, you know, for all the back and forth of the last 50 years, the evidence is now clear. We really have to step it up. And, and fortunately the technologies are there. What we need is, uh, is sustained public will yeah. to move forward. Yeah. And uh, so I've, I've been really appreciative of the energy that the, that the FCB Green team has put uh, behind this to get us to divest of fossil fuels, to make the investment in the energy system, and to continue that progress uh, so that we can model what needs to be done for others in the community of Belmont. Yeah, no, it's mm. it's uh, it's exciting. And actually, one of the things that we're working on with Rayanne, uh, our new director of youth ministry, um, around service learning opportunities is we have uh, a wonderful, the beginning of a wonderful partnership with a group called the Sustainable Harvest International um, that we're, again, just getting to the point of firming up details, but we'll be able to have youth service trips and adult service trips. And what they do is they partner with uh, small farmers in, uh, in Honduras, Panama, and Belize and they help um, teach them sustainable agricultural practices. Folks who used to do slash and burn agriculture, which releases tons of carbon. Um, mm. And instead they create small farms that actually trap carbon. And so they're having substantive effect on climate change, which is really amazing. And so partnering with organizations like that, that are doing good work and, and leveraging all of our own individual choices, we can really make a, make a pretty huge difference. So, um, so, in along with Rayan and this incredible team of folks, how has it been working with our youth? Well, it's it's been really eye opening for me. This is uh, my third year as a mentor, and uh, I remember uh, back to the fall of nineteen when I first joined, thinking what a 
a joyful place for these kids to come and really be able to let their hair down and relax with each other and connect at a very deep level. But it was within just four or five months of my taking on this role that the pandemic happened. Mm -hmm. And of course, we all uh, had to go remote. And it was, uh, I know, very difficult to um, uh, sustain the energy of the youth group uh, during that period. And I have realized just how heavily the burden of the pandemic has fallen on our uh, on our youth and young people, our high school, college, and young adults. Um, so uh, this fall, with Rayan's arrival and with the uh, uh, the uh, reconnection and the um, re- resumption of in-person meetings, it's been a delight for me to see uh, the kids get together again. They clearly love being together <laughs> and. Um, so there's, you know, there's a lot of energy. There's a lot of laughter. Um, it's, it's really a wonderful experience. Yeah. It's, I, I always love coming in and, and seeing them and, and seeing, seeing all that energy. It's, it's pretty, it's pretty remarkable. Um, well, and, and then the other big piece, uh, of what you do is we mentioned some of the history, but you are, I think you are now, the torch has been passed officially. I think you're now the official church historian. Am I right? Well, um, that's, that is true. Jim Lanfried has, he, he sort of took on the role yeah. in an unofficial way and produced our wonderful 150th uh, church history back in uh, 2006. And I've learned an enormous amount. I continue to learn an enormous amount from Jim. Yeah. Uh, but now that the church is open again, uh, at least in a limited way, um, I've been able to start to delve into the archives and learn a, a lot more about uh, our early history, mm. our history through the mid 20th century. And uh, one of my goals is to put together representative materials from our archives that will really help to give all interested members and friends uh, a sense of how we have evolved as a community. There have been several efforts since, uh, really since the foundation of the church uh, to produce histories. And what's interesting is to see how our self-understanding as a community has evolved through time. Um, Going back to, you know, 1906, there was a a wonderful 50th anniversary sermon and another at 75 years, there was a huge centennial celebration in 1956. And again, in 1990, uh, the 100th anniversary of our uh, beautiful uh, uh, new sanctuary building, we're in our second building, and then Jim's history. So those, those are examples but also um, to learn more about the individuals who served as settled ministers at our church uh, before uh, your tenure, Chris, and to learn about some of our um, illustrious lay members, um, the leaders of the church, other members who were leaders in society, in government or academia or, uh, or industry uh, and other fields. Um, we're, we are a church with an amazing, rich history. And I just personally feel it's a real privilege to have been invited to uh, take on this role to really dive in and 
learn more about it. It it comes for me at a um, uh, at a pivotal moment in my life. I'm coming up age sixty five and sort of trending out of the workplace, and so um, this this is an experience that that uh, I hope will be a, a significant part of my time um, in the in the coming few years. Well, and I'm so grateful that you mentioned Jim. We are deeply, deeply in his debt for his long, voracious and uh, extensive thirst and sharing of history. And if any of the mm. listeners haven't read the first 150 years uh, book that Jim created, we have some copies right near my office. Feel free come by, check it out. It's, it's a real mm. gift that Jim uh, has given and continues to give because along with you, John and, and Sam, I think you're in this group too. We have a, that's we have right. a first church history group that's happening. That's right. We're meeting monthly uh, with John. Uh, the staff members are uh, Lillian, Lillian and I, and anyone listening is very welcome to, to join this group where we're, we're having monthly discussions of first church history uh, and we're plan trying to plan some programs together and it's a very stimulating group and, and you're very welcome to join. If you're listening, just get in touch with us. Yeah. And, um, and the theme, we have these seasonal themes this year. We're doing three, uh, the fall, uh, was cultivating relationship and the winter is holding history. So in worship and in programs and in lots of ways, we'll be digging into this question of history and then spring will be, uh, awakening will be the theme, but I think I, I love what you're saying about history too, John, especially at the church, because, you know, we're in the middle of a really fascinating moment of our history. When you think about it, it feels like we're doing so many things so differently. And it's a, it's, you know, we've had this whole multi-platform experiment for the last year and a half or more, you know, we've been really stretching out in so many different directions and, you know, it's part of a larger pattern, right? I mean, email came to the church at some point, you know, the internet happened as a thing, you know? And so I feel like <laughs> churches are always constantly in the process of evolving and, and meeting meeting the moment that surrounds us. And, and one of the beautiful things I think is as much as so much changes, so much is still the same. You know, you mentioned a worship service from 70 years ago, you know, and like we had all of these rites of passages last night at the, at the youth meeting, you showed me that thing about youth ministry, however long ago, many, many decades. And, and it's one of the beautiful things I think is that there are these cycles of history and, and some part of the purpose of the church remains constant through them, I think. Yeah. That has to be. Yeah. Well, um, so one of the other things that we've asked folks, uh, our guests on the pod, was about um, our sources and principles. And if there was a, a source or a principle that you that extra resonates for you today or anything you particularly appreciate. Well, Chris... Um, you know, I have over the years, I've spent time uh, studying our principles and our sources, and I've I've come to the view that that they are all indispensable. Nice. Um, and yet there is one that has always resonated with me, and that is our final 
uh, principle, respect for the interdependent web of all existence of which mm. we are a part. I cannot tell you how many times in the last, especially in the last 10 or 15 years, when uh, Teresa and I often at night, we talk about problems in the world and um, the situation with the the environment, with health, healthcare, uh, political crises, um, uh, matters in our own lives. And at some point in the conversation, she or I will say to the other, it's all connected. Mm. And we mm. just, how many times have we said that? It is all connected. Um, you can't, you can't tug at a thread without uh, it affecting the whole fabric. And I, I feel that way uh, about our environmental crisis and its links to our larger economy, to the uh, matters of justice in the world. And um, so I think that's, that's the one that, that really connects with me. And yet all of the others uh, are so important. And in this time of a real crisis for democracy in America, I, I think the respect for the equal dignity of all people, for respect for the democratic process is so vital. This is mm. a pivotal moment for our country. Mm. And I, I felt, um, uh, you know, that we, we came to the Unitarian Universalist Church in the early 90s at a time that was, I would say, looking back, a rising tide for the spirit of religious liberalism in the country. But I have felt over the last decade or two, maybe after 9-11, after the Great Recession, after the, the, the tumult of the last five years in this country, um, the tide has been going out on religious liberalism. There is a rising sense of illiberalism in the world. We hear about it in countries around the world that are going in the direction really of fascism. Mm -hmm. And we have to um, ensure that our tradition remains strong. We are a tiny, tiny religious movement in the, uh, in the entire country. And yet, if you look back over 150 years, uh, we exerted a, a vastly disproportionate influence uh, uh, in this country. And I, I think it's important that we find ways really as a religious movement to increase our influence in the world at such a critical time. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. And, and I, I appreciate what you said around this moment. And, and I, I do, I feel when I see our folks coming to the church for the first time and I see people finding us nowadays, especially in the context of the pandemic, especially in the context of, like you say, these last five years, I think people are really hungry for this gift that we have to give. And, you know, um, for a big chunk of what, 15 years ago, starting 17 years ago, I was serving a church in Berkeley, California. And let's just say Berkeley, California isn't exactly starved for the same saving message of Unitarian Universalism in quite the same <laughs> way that somewhere that's more culturally conservative. You know, we had basically the bumper stickers in our parking lot were on a lot of cars in Berkeley, California. And still, even there, even then, there is this real powerful saving message that we have and even only more so now. You know, I've colleague um, over in Dedham, Massachusetts, and, you know, we were talking and there's like a huge alt-right population in Dedham, 
you know, all around really? us, all around us. This isn't something that's far away. This isn't a red state thing. This isn't, mm. you know, like you say, this illiberalism is, is, is all around. Um, and even here in Belmont. And so I think it's, it's a real, it's a real important moment to be able to, to speak up and, and act up for, for dignity and, and love and all yeah, that. And I would, and I, and I would, I would say, uh, that, um, I mean, John, your your uh, your interest in history and your your historical work, I for for me, um, understanding history is part of the same project as as mm. as uh, resisting illiberalism, mm -hmm. because uh, including in religion as well as in politics, because part of this this it's sort of illiberal kind of. Um, you know, Christian nationalist movement that we're seeing in many countries around the world, including here, it's about creating this fantasy version of the past mm. that we that to to wish to get back to, and an antidote to that is to understand what the past was really like. You know, that the past was a much more complex, diverse, internally conflicted um, kind of work in progress than the the the. The fantasy that that Christian nationalists and right wingers and illiberals like to imagine, um, yeah, here as well as elsewhere. So, well, thank you so much, John. This was really super fascinating, and thank you for everything you're doing on so many levels. Uh, it's been a real joy to get to work with you and and to hear from you and get to know you even more. So, thanks for coming on. Oh well, thank you, Chris. I've really enjoyed the opportunity. Yeah, thank you, John. This was great. All right. Well, Sam, that was fascinating. Yeah, that was fascinating. John is a, a really interesting guy. This, this was such a good idea. Huge shout out. Rayanne Mason, our youth director of youth ministry and our social media and digital ministry consultant. She, she had this idea and it's been the foundational ideas. Everyone is fascinating. And just talking, yeah. you know, I knew John was great, but this is, that was really, really wonderful conversation. So yeah. as always, if you have questions you'd like us to take up, uh, send them in minister at uubelmont.org. We'll be rounding out this first season and we'll be bringing you another season uh, later in the spring. But thank you as always, Sam. This is Sam has put a bunch of time into this. By the time you actually hear this, <laughs> by the time you hear these words, Sam will have put a whole lot of time into this. And it's a yeah. real gift. And I'm really grateful. Um, and for you for listening. And yeah. we'll, yeah, we'll be together the next time. Thanks for coming. Bye, everybody. <laughs>